You're listening to The Noise Cancelling Pod, the podcast about streamlining life, encouraging discourse, and maximizing your mind. Hosted by Frank Boyce and Axel Clark. This unpaid fictional ad is brought to you by The Masters of Text, a new podcast from NPRR. This methodic and chronological walk from the first telex machine in 1933 until today will have you anxiously waiting for the next tasty nugget of historical context, diving in deep to the etymology of internet shorthand and the cost of losing real language. Each episode weaves pop culture, history, and technology into a yarn worthy to knit. Whether it's hashtag blessed, weird vegetable emojis, or the first flip phone, Masters of Text is your one source for texting trivia. Subscribe now on iTunes, or you can find them streaming on national private radio. Remember, that's Masters of Text, the only text that's safe to use while you're driving. Uh, Welcome to our our podcast, Noise Canceling Pod, Episode 3. I'm Frank Boyce. And I'm Axel Clark. Today we have a it's a special podcast. It's our first interview podcast. We have my good friend and former roommate Trevor to discuss news and politics. So welcome, Trevor. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, Trevor. So we brought you on mainly to discuss news and politics. So you, uh, like I said, you were my roommate when we both lived in Boston. You've lived in, uh, like I said, Boston, Louisiana, Alabama, Memphis, Washington State. So. We're expecting you to give us kind of the southern, the southern perspective, and uh, I know you follow politics and news, and you provide a lot of great insights during our discussions. And you're always sending me interesting articles and positions, so we're excited to talk to you today. Yep, like I said, uh, real excited to be here. Uh, big fan, long time listener. <laughs> <laughs> you're our uh, senior political correspondent <laughs> yeah. at this point, so a lot of responsibility here. So since that, you that's have what been- I've heard. Yeah, so since you have been listening, you know we've kind of talked about news and where we get the news and who we uh, discuss the news with. So we're going to kick it off by just asking you, Trevor, where do you get your news? You know, know, for the long period of time that I've been listening to the podcast, I've been hearing you guys uh, talk about Twitter and and whatnot, and i got to be honest with you guys, I I find a lot of my news on, uh, on the Twitter machine. So pretty accurate, very informative, lengthy, you know, 10,000 plus character pieces, that type of thing. You know, uh, I tend to uh, get really in-depth analysis from uh, 140 character tweets. I've noticed <laughs> that. But uh, sometimes every now and again, there's a uh, a blue part of the text that, that brings you to a bigger article. I don't know how they do it, but, you know. <laughs> Um, that's magic. So, that's magic. It, it might be. Dude, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack is what I found. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult to uh, take great reporting and uh, differentiate it from, uh, you know, an op-ed or an editorial. But, you know, who, if you look at it long enough. Who's your best source? Like, who do you think your best source is for finding, well... First of all, are you looking for op-eds or are you looking for objective pieces? What are you looking for first? And then also, who would be your source for each of those? You know, my stance has always been when it comes to media, uh, depending on what side of the aisle you're at, what side of the argument you want to be on, you can find someone to tell you that you're right. What I try to do is I try to find the credible reporters that you don't just see on one station, you see them on multiple stations, uh, quote unquote insiders in Washington, f- 
So when they get the scoop, you know it's legit and you know it's unbiased for the most part. When it comes to politics, Robert Costa is my guy uh, on the on the presidential beat. You know the guys the guys in there with every story has the inside scoop. He's on every news channel, you know, interviewed on all of them, and he just tells it like it is and true facts. So that's who I'm going for when I'm looking for presidential spin, you know, what's going on. Uh, you know, depending on what you're feeling like, like I said, you can find whatever you're looking for. I'm, I'm adding Robert Costa. I'm going to see what he's about. Hey, Frank. Did. Frank, I want to hear you've so you jumped on Twitter using our the uh, noise canceling uh, canceling pod Twitter handle. What's your experience so far? Yeah, it's uh, at noise canceling pod. If anybody wants to follow or give us some informative tweets, that would be awesome. Um, I just found it's been a huge pain. I, I, there's just so much advertising and sponsored links, and maybe you know, like like Trevor just pointed out, maybe I'm not following the right voices. Maybe I still need. I'm still on this long Twitter journey to figure out where where it's leading. But yeah, so far I've just found to be this huge pain where every day I look at it and I'm just like, I am getting dumber every time this updates. So I haven't <laughs> yeah, enjoyed you, it so far. But you still want it to update. Like I still find myself like I'll, I'll check out my hand. I wonder if there's something new in here. It's like your like your lizard brain is just looking for a new tweet to just go, oh, maybe I'll find something interesting. Oh yeah, you're definitely just goldfishing. You're you're swimming around, <laughs> trying to forget what you've seen before, and hoping that something new and interesting pops up. Shout out to Tay Diggs for the follow to the noise canceling pod. By the way, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you got to throw them out there. If you if, <laughs> if you're gonna be on Twitter, you might as well tweet tweet big. Yeah. Hey Trevor, when you're dis- who do you discuss the news with, or who? Wh- what would you say your circles are that uh, that you generally discuss different topics? So a wise man once said, don't talk about religion, politics, or anything of that nature with people that you don't trust. <laughs> so uh, really, I, I stick to my close, uh, close friends and family, you know, um, you know, every now and again, I'll be reading, reading articles or I'll be watching the news and I'll text Axel, hey, man, I can't believe that this, this just came out of some human's mouth. And uh try to get his hot take and uh but yeah mostly mostly friends and family hey so that that brings us to our first topic speaking of uh hot takes so just this week a lot of news on donald trump and some of uh inflammatory tweets and positions that he sent out so trevor can you give us your take on uh donald trump well this this week before a rally in south carolina Donald Trump uh, came out with a policy position that he sent out via email and then not sure if he put it on his website yet or not, basically saying that uh, his policy is to close the borders to all Muslims. And, you know, no matter what side of the argument you are on when it comes to the war on terror, how do we win? What do we need to do? What are the steps we need to take? One thing that must always reign true is American values. And I think, I think we're losing that with that, with that statement coming from the Trump campaign. I think it's short-sighted. Some would say it's offensive. 
But most of all, I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous with regards to radicalization within the country and also take it another step farther. We're relying on our Muslim allies out in the Middle East. And if that's our position, if that's even thought to be our position, why would any human want to help us? So I think it's dangerous to our men and women in uniform and, you know, the professionals on the ground that are out there working intel, you know, we got to be smarter. Words matter. And I think that's something that's lost in this campaign. And uh, every political season, there is something crazy that comes out that somebody says. And whether you agree with it or not, words do matter. So that's my hot take on it. My favorite. So this guy just trashed Twitter, and then I'm gonna mention this. So my favorite tweet is I can't remember who said it, but uh, he said Donald Trump is like we rolled all internet comments into a candidate or something like that. That's a pretty good comparison. It, you know, it's like the comment section of a YouTube video that has gone viral, and everyone loves to hate it, and everyone loves to love it. He's a troll. I mean, he's a troll, kind of, right? You know, I I don't want to discount what, what he's doing during the campaign. Because I'll say this. He's leading in all the major polls amongst all the Republicans, with the exception in Iowa. Ted Cruz actually just went past him in Iowa. So now Trump's in second place. But it would be foolish to to believe that he's not striking a chord with people. Now, whether or not they vote or not is another story, but so I don't want to discount what he's doing. However, I do think that he's found, he's found a vein where he can be the troll and people do rally around it. So I, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Is he yeah. Get- and I just mean that. And Oh, go ahead. Actually. No, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I mean that more in the sense of you're, you're being inflammatory just for the, the sake of being inflammatory. Not that you have any ideal or even really idea to bring to the table. You're just saying something to get people riled up and to, to I guess, get anger and hatred going. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And isn't it scary <laughs> kind of watching this all happen? It's I mean, if, it's terrifying. It feels very out of control. I agree. Do you think that the media... So first of all, the definitely the media is helping this out by putting it all over the place. And like, if you look at if you look at his polling percentage and versus like the amount of coverage that he gets, he gets way more coverage than people of like equivalent uh, favorability in the polls. Uh, do you think like I've read the media is basically helping him and pushing his helping to push him into the limelight does he really have support like does he who is even supporting him anymore what it appears to be is well let's go back to square one so donald trump is a billionaire famous you know i remember him in home alone too (laughs) uh he's been a part of american life for many many years and he he's as recognizable as most american figures in this country you know um he was able to build a large fan base and that's what i'd call it uh, on the apprentice you know famous words you're fired and 
he turned it into a presidential campaign where a lot of people are saying, hey, I know that guy. And he's saying what I say at my dinner table, at my kitchen table. I say those things. And it's actually kind of funny, Axel. I don't know if you recall, we were having a conversation one night when I told you, you know, when when Trump comes out and says, let's bomb them all, I'll bomb the sh out of them. And I was sitting there and saying, can you imagine being a guy just getting off of work, sitting down with your wife and your two kids, sitting down to dinner, turning on the TV, and you see that on the TV, and, and you say, hey, I just said that. I said we that's how we beat ISIS, and that guy's saying it. So I think people are connecting with this guy, which is interesting considering he's a billionaire, and most of us will never have the opportunity to touch that amount of money, but he struck a tone with, with people that... Uh, Better fans. I would say they're more fans than voters. Hey, so I had I mentioned that tweet uh, before. So as Chris Rock said, Donald Trump is basically just a YouTube comment section running for president. So there you go, your little tweet of the week. That was a good one. Hey, so I, I guess I'll I'll start following Chris. Chris, Chris yeah, Chris Rock. Hey, so I have two thoughts on the on the Trump thing. So the first is okay. Generally, people are or people are going to say that what he's saying, everyone agrees that it's wrong. But do you think that in some ways it's worthwhile in that it's pulling people who, like, I guess there is there are people out there that have these opinions. But do you think pulling them into the discussion and making them try to support their discussion in public will ultimately cause them to like realize their position is terrible and? not in line with American values. And so if they just sat in their homes and just like discuss this among their like-minded people without actually bringing this into the public discussion, do you think it would just sit there and fester versus now at least it's out in the open and we can actually explain to people why it's such a terrible position? Or, hold on, I have one more thing. Or have we just, like everyone's talking about, have we just brought like the ultimate internet troll like into the mainstream media and we're just like our media is now internet comments. I think when you have something that's so inflammatory and there's not even, there's no schema for discussing. Like we haven't had the policy discussion, you know, ever since <laughs> the country began about if we should let people of different religions in, you know, other than world war two, which Trump conveniently <laughs> referenced those proclamations. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't even think there's like a, there's no background. There's no discussion that we can kind of jump off on or have a reference point. So I think it's kind of like um, the point when a pinata pops, like we're just scrambling to figure out like what, what are these angry bits that we're dealing with? You know, like how, how can we even describe these to people in a coherent way where you're saying like, this is so wrong for all of these reasons. Like there's, there's almost too many reasons to even list in a conversation, definitely for 140 characters. <laughs> right. I, I'd agree. Um, you know, something interesting happened yesterday. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders. So he's from Vermont running, uh, running for the democratic nomination. He had a pretty interesting take on it that I didn't think about until he said it, which was interesting. He said, working class Americans are out of work, or if they are getting back to work, they're not making the money they did before the recession, and they're looking for someone to blame. And over the course of history, we've always blamed someone. It, it was always 
them or they, you know, and he has his idea of what it really is, what the real issue is. But people are looking for someone to blame. And it just so happens that Donald Trump came out and said, you know what? You guys aren't making money. It's China's fault. It's Japan's fault. It's Mexico's fault. Oh, you guys are tired of of people not having policy positions. Guess what? No Muslims allowed and we're going to bomb them. I mean, people are looking, grasping for straws and this guy's selling them the snake oil. Yeah, hundred percent. So, I mean, what do you what do you do with that? Like, where, like I said, like I'm struggling to to pick up the pieces after this and figure out, you know, like what is other than just outrage, you know, like what what else can be said to actually, like Axel said, further this discussion? Well, I think we've gotten to the point of no return with these people that are that are Trump voters. If you wanna if you wanna give them a title. Uh, he came out with a with a tweet yesterday, essentially threatening to go independent from the Republican Party. He said, I've been told that 68% of my voters will leave with me if I run as an independent. As far as I'm concerned, 68% of the 30% is a small piece of the pie, but those people are really, they're, they're all in with him. And I don't think we can change those minds. But I do think that having a having a discussion, a real discussion like you guys have on a weekly basis, I think does help with getting people that are on the fence that are willing to listen. But as far as that, the 31 percent or so that he's got in the party, you know, you're not going to convince them that Muslims are great people that want to do nice things and be doctors and be engineers and serve in the military. They've made up their minds. And unfortunately, that's where we're at in politics today, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think I meant to question more like what you were pointing out in terms of those statements hurt our standing in the world. You know, they hurt what over 25 percent of the earth feels towards the United States because we're alienating an entire huge religion. It's it's hurting our troops on the ground um, just in terms of a recruiting tool for for the enemy. So I, I think. I want to dive more into what exactly is, is wrong with it. Um, maybe Axel can take a little bit on, on what his take on, on what is so wrong. Obviously it's, it's blatantly racist. So I, I don't even necessarily want to just take the, the racism factor. And, you know, I mean, there's not, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to generalize, but you know, there's, there's a certain, I'll just let you take it away. Axel. Hey, my, so my problem is, like you said, I don't even know how. Like, it's clearly wrong to to just single out a large group of people like that, and so I don't even know where to start on that. Like, what is his main point? Like, I don't even know what his what points to refute because it's, it seems so outrageous. Like, I would. So I at first I was kind of intrigued by Trump because he was trolling. He didn't really care. Like, I thought some of his early techniques were kind of brilliant. But now, man, he's gone to such an extreme. I would not be surprised if tomorrow he came out and he's like, "Hey, this is just a big joke. I was just trying to see how much I could, how far I could push this, and I'm not even serious about running." Like it's so extreme, I can't even believe that it's legitimate. You know, honestly, people have been have been passing that out there, right? Is this just a way <laughs> for a him to bow out gracefully? It's just, no, it could be. It's like a practical. Hey, guys, just, I'm a billionaire. I want to run this pr- practical joke. Peace. I don't think he'll do that, but I don't it know. It could be. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. 
honestly, you never know. I so one other thing I was thinking about is do you, potentially he's pushing the conversation so far to the extreme right that he's kind of creating space for the far right candidates to look less extreme. Like now, when I look at Ted Cruz, I'm like, well, I mean, he's pretty out there, but he he could be worse. <laughs> uh, I followed Ted Cruz, you know, his entire term, you know, freshman center out of Texas, and uh, especially living in Alabama, you know, uh, mo in the in the area where I live, it's mostly Department of Defense, mostly NASA. It's government, okay. So you've got federal government basically running this town. Without it, the town sinks into nothing and then where do we go from there what's interesting is while Cruz was you know crusading to shut the government down a bunch of my coworkers were hooting and hollering saying yeah shut down the government the government's terrible and I literally had to ask them what government do you think they're shutting down you're not going to work on Monday <laughs> and the I guess the the point of saying that is that that is his claim to fame as a presidential candidate. I've gone against the grain. But like Axel said, he's absolutely looking like the moderate because Trump is so outrageous. And you're right. It, this is the most odd election I've ever witnessed. And, you know, Get your popcorn ready because it's about to get exciting in a couple months when Iowa, when Iowa votes. Yeah, in, in our office today, I was I was trying to get everybody to put in their predictions for all the all the GOP primaries, and I was doing mine, and I was like, "Whoa, this could be, this could be really tight, even all the way through the convention." So I I agree. I think it'll be, it'll be definitely one for the record books if everybody stays in. So one thing I wanted to discuss actually was, you know, the middle Middle East is such a mess. In our, I think it was either episode zero episode one axel and i were talking about you know where would you actually start if you didn't have any knowledge of the middle east but i don't want to quite go back that far i want to talk about you know what do you think can be done because i I think both of you guys have a really unique perspective you've seen a lot of the world and and probably have some some ideas it's such a mess and and it's kind of similar to the trump thing where I, i just don't even have it's hard to even form what my coherent plan would be let alone what a political candidate's plan would be. So maybe you guys can just talk on that just a little bit. All right. So an interesting article, I think I found it today, maybe it was yesterday, but it's uh, the article's titled Nicholas Hennon, the man who was held captive by ISIS for 10 months, says how they can be defeated. And so he's this French guy that was captured by ISIS. He was like beaten, abused, and ultimately they, they released him. And he was explaining that, I mean, that bombing ISIS, they don't care about that because they they already think this is a holy war and they like they're they want more martyrs. And really, the thing that scared them the most, or when they were the most dejected, was when there was all the stuff on the news about Muslim, like initially when Europe was accepting all the Muslim res- refugees, like that was the thing that deflated them the most because their whole ideology is based on the idea that. Uh, that the rest of the world is against Muslims and that all Muslims should join them in the caliphate. And when the news was was talking about how Muslims were being welcomed in Europe, that was, he said that was the lowest, uh, like the morale was 
while he was over there. And then, of course, once it, it turned the other way, like that, they're just it's just pushing people into the mm-hmm. hands of ISIS. So I thought it was interesting to hear his perspective because most of the time you think, man, this guy got beat by them. He probably like probably wants to go back and kill as many as he can, but that was not his perspective. So the what I find interesting about what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on with ISIL, what's going on with all the different moving parts is I keep hearing we don't have a strategy to win. And, you know, as much as we might not want to admit it, that's directly correlated and tied in with the presidential election. Okay. The Democrats are weak. The Republicans will be strong or the Republicans are too hawkish and we're going to go in with just the right amount of hawkishness, right? Uh, for Democrats. The interesting thing that I find is if you sit down and you really take a look and you guys had mentioned this on a previous podcast with the, with the, with Turkey. Okay. Turkey has been fighting with the Kurds for a very, very, very long time right now or today we had Ashton Carter, secretary of defense on Capitol Hill testifying in front of the armed services committee in the Senate. And if you were a novice and didn't know anything about the Middle East and just heard, why aren't we arming the Kurds? Why is Turkey unwilling to support us on the ground? Why is Saudi Arabia not getting into the fight? Why this? Why that? What's interesting is, and you guys discussed it, Kurds and the, and the Turks, they got problems. But if you're a novice and you don't know what they're talking about, you look and say, yeah, well, why not? So my point is, we've got about 30 different pieces of a puzzle in the Middle East right now, none of which want to work with each other. The question that I have is, how do we get to the American people and say, listen, slow and steady is going to win this race, but we live in a microwave society, so I know you want us to bomb and win tomorrow. It's not going to happen. And none of these things happen like that anyways. So my question would be, how far and how long do we want to waste time trying to educate people the different moving parts in the Middle East today? And are they willing to listen? I think that's a, I think that's the beginning. But how long do we want to do that? And are they comfortable with letting us do that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all very, very well-said points, especially on, on Turkey and the complexity and historical conflict of that region is i mean if you if you drew it on you know the venn diagram of conflict it would be very insanely complicated i wonder i've tried to think what is a realistic end state and i don't know what i can't i can't find one i i was i I was listening to dan carlin who uh he has a podcast called common sense and uh he's just kind of like this wasn't his position but he was just exploring this position that like at some point maybe you just need like maybe the sunnis need their little section the shias need their section and like you just you obviously don't want like a pure massacre but like at some point just let the forces kind of play that out and there's going to be a natural border formed and like that's where you form the border at least then uh (laughs) like you basically let human nature play out the borders versus just trying to say hey we're we're the like we're the u.s we're the world's police and we're going to come in and we're going to set these borders 
and we're gonna say, okay, you're this group is in charge or that group is in charge and laying out all these boundaries, some group is gonna feel marginalized in that system and that group is, is most likely gonna respond with terrorism. So for the US to try to come in and impose like order in there, how, how are we gonna do that? Yeah, I think there's I mean, there, there's some ways that you could do it, but there's you know specific regions that would be very difficult to to divide equally. You know, central Iraq would be would be really hard just because there's not a great deal of oil reserved. The whole Syrian region is a huge complexity where you know maybe four three or four years ago we were thinking like oh let's let's just let Assad run out of power and the Free Syrian Army can come in and take over, but you know that has proven to be um fraught with a lot of a lot of issues as well so i mean those those are two just two examples of things where you know even in-depth studying you can't even really figure out a a coherent strategy where you're not like yeah they're just going to go to war with each other right after we impose anything and i think what if you take that to the next step what people are so focused on that here at home the reason for that is we just had, you know, 14 people get shot at a at a work Christmas or holiday party in California. And people are saying, well, what are we doing to get tough on ISIS? In my opinion, I would say that they're two different situations because right now we're fighting an idea here at home, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I definitely agree. They're, they're very different situations, and I think, too, to say just because someone has a link to an organization makes them an offshoot of that or that we should deal with them the same way that we would deal with, you know, a large training camp in the middle of the desert is, you know, disingenuous. And to think that we could wipe Raqqa off of the face of the earth and then fix all the issues of homegrown terrorism here. Sometimes I just shake my head and I, I have no words. <laughs> Yeah, if you take Iraq as, as an example, you know, I personally was was fine with how we exited Iraq. It was it was hasty, it was ill-advised, but the time had come to get out of there and say, "Okay, well, we don't have a presence here anymore. Let's see what you do with it." I I felt from a pragmatic standpoint that that was the right time to do it. You know, obviously, looking back, you can Monday morning quarterback all the, all that you want and, and say, you know, I, it didn't work out well. It was ill-advised. We did it too quickly. The State Department's transition was an abomination to be kind. Um, but at the same time, in my mind, there was this very psychological element to that where we're saying, you know, what are, what do you still have to be mad at us about? You know, the original thing was you were saying the infidel was in your holy land. Well, the infidel has gone. So what what now was really my thought process. So I would say to that from an ISIS perspective. So a lot of them are former Iraqi jet like generals and uh, field grade officers that are basically running ISIS at this point. And so before the war they were in charge and then when we went in there we disbanded the army or whatever but on top of that we basically from their perspective installed a shiite government or at least a government a government run by shiites and then that government started to just like <laughs> arrest sunnis take them out and basically i mean they're not they're terrorizing them from a 
using political means to basically, from the Sunnis' perspective, terrorize the Sunnis. And so basically they're saying, you guys installed the Shiite government and then just left them to just uh, marginalize us and terrorize us with what is perceived to be legitimate power because they're now elected. Trevor, anything to add? You know, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. And when, when you take a step back and you really look at it, you know, they call it what debathification. So they go in, we install a new government. We sit, we, we claim mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier. And then we're there for another 10 years. That is why today president of the United States says, I'm not willing to put ground troops in another middle Eastern war for God knows how long or, or for what reason, why, you know, I mean, we've been here, we've done it twice. And that's what I find interesting is all the polling leading up to this was, Hey, yeah, we American people do not want to go to war again. And now we've got the new bully on the block in ISIS. And now people want to go back. But those same people that are beating the drums of war aren't sending their kids to go out and fight that battle. And that, that, that's something that has baffled me for the longest time. But to get back to the original point, I'm sorry for tailing off a little bit on a rant. But um, I agree with Axel. You know, we booted out these bad guys. We brought in a new group of folks. And then we're confused as to why people are radicalizing and are deciding to fight back against us for what was the original sin. That's the challenge in the Middle East is it's so complicated that whatever you do, like whatever you do, you're marginalizing someone or you're, you're helping someone. The problem is how they deal with each other is through, at least right now is through strength and through basically oppression and whoever, like the problem is finding someone that's going to be legitimate and thinking that they're going to all work together in a democratic government, I think is unrealistic. If we could just clone this pod, learn, learn Arabic and and export this all over the world that we may, we may have a chance. Is that what you're saying? I think that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm tweeting that. Or maybe we can find a podcast where we can learn Arabic and then just re-record this. <laughs> That's a great idea. I, I was really disappointed. Uh, <laughs> I've talked about at length uh, my failures of learning German, but I was I was really disappointed two weeks ago when I found out that Duolingo doesn't have Arabic yet. So there, that that really that killed my momentum for at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh. All right, Trevor. Well. That's it, man. It was great having you on. Great to hear your perspective. We're going to have to do this again. Sounds good to me. One uh, quick question before I go for the two hosts of the podcast. Not sure if you guys noticed. I was told to uh, prepare prepare a talking point or two. So my question for you oh. guys is, did you see Time Person of the Year for the cover this year? <laughs> I didn't. Angela Merkel of Germany? No, I didn't see that. So Angela Merkel was voted by the Times staff to be the person of the year. My question for you guys is, who would be your person of the year, the most influential person of 2015? Oh, man. 
can I can I go back through the years? I don't I don't <laughs> I haven't felt very inspired by by the world this year. Uh, I'll think. Well, Axel, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, in terms of if you're just defining it as influential, I mean, you almost have to give it to the Don out of. I mean, I mean, just how much noise. Yeah, I think you give it to the Don and write how terrible, I don't know. That's just, but, oh man, the problem is you're just perpetuating, like, that's exactly what he wants, is just more free publicity, so you're just perpetuating have you the guys troll. Seen, have you like, guys I, seen the NBA? Don't feed have the troll. Have you guys seen the NBA impersonator guy on YouTube? Yeah, I might give him personally. Yes. <laughs> so, I would agree, he's pretty phenomenal. In fact, the LeBron James impersonation was fantastic but as i leave i'll leave you with this 140 character tweet from none other than none other than real donald trump with (laughs) this is so good i told you at time magazine would never pick me as person of the year despite being the big favorite they picked the person who is ruining (laughs) germany (laughs) god damn oh <laughs> wow! So there's wow, always that great. noise canceling pot. <laughs> that's a great Senior way to bring it around. political correspondent. That is that's a great job done. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for hey, having Trevor, me. Hey Trevor, before you go, uh, if uh, follow some of the news you're, you're at, uh, what's your Twitter handle? You can find me at t Rayley R A I L E Y seven. Nice, great. All right, yeah. guys. We'll thanks for having me. Right. Hope thanks to forever. do it again Absolutely. sometime soon. Okay. Now we're going to talk about dealing with failure. And Frank's going to start us off with a personal story. Yep. So I'm I'm going back a few years to uh, my transition from playing high school basketball to playing college basketball. Um, I grew up, it was always a dream of mine. I know I didn't end up, I was thinking about this this week. I didn't actually ever do my bio. So this is this is part one of Frank's bio. But I, I grew up, I really wanted to play Division One basketball. And I, I ended up getting recruited for the Air Force Academy to play basketball. And, you know, obviously, 18-year-old kid, you're over the moon. You have no idea what to even expect. And so when I got out to, to Colorado Springs, I was, uh, I was kind of blindsided by the fact that, I mean, really, the bare truth is that I just wasn't good enough. You know, I was playing with guys who have spent time in the MBDL. There's a, a couple guys who have played overseas. And I just, I literally, even if I had way more time and more years to practice, I, I could have never made that varsity team. So at the time, you know, I ended up playing JV for two years and, and I had fun and it was still a great experience. But really years after that, I was still kind of bogged down by this overall sense of failure that, you know, I, I had wanted, I had this dream and I had fallen short. And so it, it took me a, a long time to really think through, you know, what, what is failure, especially in a sports career, you know, and, and I, I had to reframe how I thought about it and look at, you know, how few examples there are of people actually going out on top at, at the absolute pinnacle. And you think about a player like Jalen Rose, who, you know, had a great college career and had a great pro career, but he was he was never even an all star. He he never he never even. I mean, he played in an NBA championship, but he never won a championship. And this is this is a guy who is you know an incredible athlete. So for me, it was really 
years later that I, I kind of realized, you know, yes, I mean, it was, it was a failure in the sense that you didn't get to exactly where you wanted to be, but it, it wasn't in a failure that, you know, you reached your full potential, even if that potential wasn't good enough. So that, that was kind of how I, I reframed my failure. And, and it's really helped me a ton since then in terms of, you know, being able to look back at how something came out or how a goal came out and, and being much more okay with, you know, not reaching exactly where I wanted to get. Um, have you had any experiences with failures in your life? I mean, you're, you're a pretty successful guy. So this, this may be a hard question to answer. (laughs) No, I definitely have examples of failure. One thing, one way I think about it and someone in my office was asking this about this today because they had an opportunity passing by that they didn't know about that they found out after the fact and they're asking me well do you think things happen for a reason like maybe maybe this happened for a reason and i told them i don't know if things happen for a reason but you're probably better off thinking that they happen for a reason yeah that's so that's uh so i don't know i've definitely had failures where uh let me think yeah, I, I blindsided you with that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm about. Oh, I know one failure when we try to run the half marathon. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think there's any oh, that... lesson learned out of that, except I've never want to run a half marathon again. Hold on, though, was that my failure or your failure? I think it was. I think that was had to be a combination of the two. So, okay, this is a, this story has to be told. So, that we were in Turkey and. I think, I think the night before, me and Frank were running this no train half marathon with an emphasis on no train. In fact, we like proved a point not to train for it. But then everyone in our office was also running the half marathon, and for whatever reason, we felt like we were gonna beat everyone else. So the the whole time leading up to this half marathon, we were just talking trash to everyone else in the office. <laughs> <laughs> and then, hey, wasn't that when my dad was in town? And I think we went to that rock bar the night before. <laughs> yep. We were out till like 1 a.m. Or maybe it was probably midnight the night before the half marathon. And so then we show up to the half marathon. And my like the, the thing I remember the best is so for some reason we started way behind everyone. And we may even have done that on purpose just so we could pass everyone. But so we go to pass this one of our buddies and... Frank is like jumping over garbage cans. He's running backwards. We're just like completely trash talking him all the way past, like pointing at him and laughing. And so we had a great pace going on. And then we, I think we got to about mile nine. And I, I think I, I asked it to, to walk for a block. And so we started walking for that block. And was that when I cramped up? That was when, yeah, that was when you cramped up. And so we're like, hey, I guess we got to keep walking for a little bit. And so we walked it in from mile nine. <laughs> I forgot because I kept trying to jog it in and I could yeah. not, like, I would just cramp back up where I could not walk. And then not only did the kid that we were just like making fun of him running backwards pass us, but every single person in our office. Every every man, woman, and child in our family member in our office passed us. And then the worst part was my dad was at the finish line. And he said before the race, he was worried that 
like I, we'd run in so fast that he would miss the picture of us <laughs> running through the finish line. <laughs> but then we walked all the way through and he ended up with like 30 pictures. <laughs> you, so my, fa- my, favorite, my favorite memory of that was we, we had about 400 meters left and like I had tried to run numerous times between mile nine and mile 13 and it just wasn't happening and so like there was a pretty decent crowd because there's not a lot of half marathons because this was actually it wasn't like an on base marathon it was like a turkish run marathon so there was probably legitimately big yeah i mean there was probably 500 or a thousand people just like cheering people on and here we're coming in it was like 225 like just so slow and people are like clapping and like people are like come on come on I'm jogging like, in I'm like shaking my head people, hey you guys can jog it in and, and people we're started like, no. jeering us they started i think we even got some <laughs> booze from the crowd because i was like waving like i can't do it i'm sorry but it was like literally getting jeered for like two oh, minutes man. straight and we deserved it the like we deserved was, every moment was of terrible. that i mean from from preparation to, to overall effort to pacing to planning, it was it was terrible. <clears throat> so I guess there was a lesson learned out of that one. Yeah, there was there was a lot of a lot of lessons learned. And actually, so what's interesting is from from that moment, um, I ended up running a full marathon. I think it was when was it? It was like just under two years after that, and I I used many of those lesson learns to to better prepare myself for that one and it was it was an interesting marathon because it wasn't actually a race it ended up just being four of us running around a mile track 26.2 times but it was it was sweet because i was like okay to help me not cramp up i need this much this much food and because it was a mile track every lap you could come around be like oh i need some more water so it was it was actually it was the Tarsus half marathon turned out to be a huge blessing in the long run. <laughs> the the Tarsus half marathon was the last half marathon I'm going to run in my lifetime. You have you haven't run one since then? <laughs> no, I haven't run I, that or 10 miles is my max now. Maybe I need to get back at it. I can't believe you can't let that be your your long-term lasting <laughs> legacy of walking in and getting booed at <laughs> 2 hours and 22 minutes in a half marathon. Oh. You oh, you're probably right. You can't. Yeah, you just can't. All right. Well, so one talking about failure. So one book that I like that uh, that kind of has helped me think about failure and my relationship with it is this book called "The Obstacle Is the Way." And so this book uses it uses stories to explain the the key tenets of Stoicism. So that uh, began began back in the ancient Roman society, and then it was a. a a philosophy that uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, and some of the some of those are famous Stoic Stoics. But uh, one, so the author talks about uh, like tells stories. So one of my favorite stories is uh, Thomas Edison. So he was running this big factory, and so he had all these like chemical experiments going on. It's like this massive laboratory, and all of his work was in there, all of his prototypes, everything. <clears throat> And he's eating dinner with his family, and one of his workers runs in and says, "Hey, sir, come out here. We got you. Have to see what's going on." So he runs out there and he sees that his factory is on fire. And so you would think he would go just be devastated because his life work is just going up in flames. He runs back into the house, grabs his wife and kids, and say, "Hey, 
everyone run out here. You'll never see a fire like this again in your lives. They just sat there just because there was all the chemicals and stuff in their bed. It was just like explosions and everything. And they he just sat there and just ate it up. That's amazing. Uh, and then... And then, like the conclusion of the story is that within two years he had rebuilt the rebuilt the laboratory and uh, he had done like he had turned it into a business and he had he was grossing more than uh, he was prior to the fire. But yeah, that's like ridiculous optimism. But I think a, a crazy story and just kind of shows you how he thought. Yeah, I mean that's that's honestly you you stole my thunder with a much better example, but. I think from from my earlier failures, I've learned that there's not a lot of learning value from doing things well. You know, like you you kind of pat yourself on the back, are, are glad that it happened, and you know maybe take some accolades from it. But you know, the times where you you learn anything really are when you you struggle or have conflict or um, ultimately fail. So I th- I think that's helped me to set loftier goals, even even if I'm not going to get there. And even if I experience more stress and failure, to me that that's worth it. And uh, I hope I can get to that Edison level where the the next time I'm running a no train <laughs> half marathon, I can just bask in all of our glory. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing one thing I wanted to dive into is the value of retrospection, um, and and I I just wanted to find that a, a little bit more, uh, not necessarily just looking back on on memories you know not not like i said basking in your former glories but but really thinking through and uh one thing i had written down was actually doing some journaling on retrospection because i think for me especially and we talked about it last week it takes both of us a long time to process our emotions and i think especially when you experience failure experience high stress situations it takes me a long time to really figure out what I felt in that moment, what I felt after that moment, what I'm what I'm currently feeling. So for me, writing those things down is is a huge help. Um, something I wish I did a little bit more, but it, it definitely helps a lot. What um, have you have you started doing that, or, or ha, have you started doing that, or how many times do you go back and write things down or journal like that? I I did better um, probably about a year ago. But I, I really, that's something between meditation and, and journaling. I, that's a big 2016 Frank Boyce initiative that I need some, uh, I'm going to need some help on because I, I really want to dive in and, and look at even smaller iterations. You know, how am I, how am I improving what we just talked about? Like how quickly I process emotions. Am I, am I being able to put words to them and communicate myself more clearly and quicker? Yeah. So you? So you're mentioning uh, looking back and saying, hey, what could I have done better? And so most days I write in a five-minute journal. And so the concept, I don't know if I've talked about before, but the concept of the five-minute journal is uh, you write in it approximately five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. So in the morning you write three things that you're grateful for, the three things that you're going to accomplish that day, and then an affirmative statement. So the affirmative statement is something that you may not necessarily be doing but that's something you want to do. So let's say you're tr- working on eating healthy. So you say, I ate healthy today. So basically you're getting into the mindset of like, I'm doing this so that when you go into the day, your mind is already thinking that you're, you've been successful. And then at night you write three things that were amazing that happened. And then one thing that, that uh, you could have done better. And 
when you were mentioning like journaling about that, I was thinking that's the like I I should be doing that, but I think I've kind of just started going through the motions specifically on that item, and because probably if you look at my journal over the last two months, almost every well probably fifty to six like seventy five percent of the time, I just write I went like I need to go to bed earlier, <laughs> which at some point like either. Either I'm trying to go to bed early or I'm not. Like, it's ridiculous that I just continually write that down, like, basically failing over and over again. But I think I have gone through the motions. And I I think what I'm going to do moving forward, now that you mention it, I want to, at the end of the week or at certain points, I want to think about, okay, not just today, what could I have done better, but what could I have done better over the last, over the last month? Yeah, uh, it is really, it's intriguing how often we do things that we don't want to do. And, you know, for whatever reason, I think sometimes the procrastination feels good just putting something off. Like, it it feels like you're more in control. But, yeah, it it is this weird thing where you really end up doing what you don't want to do. And you can't even – I mean, could you honestly explain it most of the time? Like, you may have had something to do, but was it really a reason that you stayed up late? No, I'm easily distracted. And I'm probably checking Twitter half the time, which I've already explained is relatively pointless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've actually, now we're going into our bedtime discussion. I, I've been trying to get to bed a lot earlier lately too. And cause I've been getting up early to work out humble brag. Um, but, but it's really hard. It's hard to get into habits. And I think, I think that's the real takeaway for me with journaling is, you know, I can do it for a couple of days. I can do it for a week, but until that activity becomes something that you miss, I, th- I think that's really where that threshold of habit comes in, where all yeah. of a sudden you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I need to do that because it, it feels weird not to do that. Like that's, that's really the key, the key pivot for when, when you have something done. It's like what you were talking about with, with sugar, like it doesn't intrigue you anymore and I'm, I'm jealous by that. Um, but yeah, I think that's where you can really point to that habit and be like, okay, this is a fully formed habit that I can, I can count on. Yeah. So when I went to Qatar last summer, so I was there for a year and I, you're kind of there by yourself. So my, I think I had three, I'd like to go back and look, but I think I had three personal goals. So the first was to meditate. I think, I think it was miss a day every other month or something like that. And also do my five minute journal missing a day every other month. And then the last one was every week go use mint to categorize my purchases and I was relatively like almost 100% successful on the uh, meditation and the five minute journal. And my, I think my secret was, or what I did was, those were the first things I did during the day. So the problem is like, the farther you go into your day, you just start getting distracted and or you get tired or things like, if you really wanted to, at least for me, if I really wanted to do something, I do it like I wake up, I mean, maybe get ready a little bit, but then I get to it immediately so I don't get distracted. Yeah, for sure. I think I might even had a tweet about that this week, about doing your most difficult, complex thing first thing on Monday morning. That's, that's, legit, yeah. that's legitimate. And there's also a concept of not, if you're a manager, don't schedule your like meetings on Monday morning because your your employees are most productive at that time, so don't ruin it with a meeting. Yeah, for sure. That's That's definitely... Definitely how I feel. There were a couple things that I found helpful. I was I was looking at 
<laughs> these were actually from agile project management um, look back. So between iterations of project management, these were these were a couple of strategies that they had. One was called a WWW activity, which is you looked at what worked well, what kind of worked and what didn't work. And I think that would be pretty easily implemented into a journal. And then the other one, and I thought it was a really great question, what still puzzles me? Because I think that that really gets into that deeper thought process and, and the things that the things that take us a long time to unpack. So I th- is that I think question those... Go ahead. is that question in general, or is that question about a certain activity? Well, I mean, I think like it could project? be both. I mean, if 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 you were meditating on that question, it's a pretty pretty good general question. But if if you were trying to be retrospective about a, a specific goal that you failed on, or a certain project that you were looking at, or or why you you couldn't fall asleep, or you couldn't get to bed on time, I think that's a pretty good good question to start off with because it's so broad it allows for a lot of interpretation it that is actually so that is a hard question because it forces you to admit that maybe you weren't committed or like then you actually have to think about it and either you like i said earlier you it's probably pretty easy to point to why you're not doing certain things and so then you have to either commit to doing it or i guess just determine that it's not important enough for you to actually turn into a habit or be successful doing yeah and i think it's it's almost like one of those onion questions where okay so you you answer that part but then what still puzzles you and say like you can can keep drilling down and drilling down um you know if it's a especially a complex issue i think i think that i think i'm gonna kind of hold on to that question for for a while and and see see you know what still puzzles me because I, I, a lot of times that's a hard question to get over if you're prideful to be honest you know like I, I don't like to admit when I'm puzzled when I'm stumped and to to go through iterations where I'm saying okay I, I don't know why I failed I don't know why this meeting didn't go well I don't know why the this podcast like the second half of this podcast not that i'm saying it didn't go well but i'm saying like what <laughs> what's puzzling about about the second half of the podcast? like I, I just don't spend that much time digging deeply into into those sort of things yeah i think i might add it to my daily journal i might put it like i don't know if i'll probably i don't know if i should insert it in the morning or at the evening but i might just add it in there i'd say what night, i mean like in. like for me nighttime is much more creative than than the morning time like i i'm i can be very focused in the morning but i can't like if you were like hey frank why don't you write a live ad for uh for our next podcast in the morning i'd be like no no way i i can't i can't form a creative thought at that time in the morning and i think i think that that deeper level is hard to engage at least for me early in the morning huh so i i'm meditating in the morning and here's here's what i here's my feeling on morning versus a night person and and i don't know maybe it's something more than this but i always wanted well i was always a night person and i always was kind of jealous of the people that were morning people and i i would try to okay i'm going to be a morning person today but i had continued to my previous sleep habits of like staying up late and if you just stay up late and all of a sudden you were going to wake up early in the morning and think that i'm now going to become a morning person it's not going to happen so you have to focus on, I'm getting to bed earlier first, and then once you form the habit of getting to bed earlier, then you can transition into being a morning person. Just a theory. I don't know if it would actually work. That's interesting. I mean, 
we could do an entire podcast on sleep. I'm, I'm very fascinated by sleep and how unique it is to every individual. Cause for me, um, I'm not a morning person sometimes in the sense of like waking up and feeling super refreshed and chipper, but I, I am a morning person in terms of, I, I can get up and be very productive super early in the morning. But in terms of like where I have, like I said, the most creative thoughts, the, the deepest thoughts when I can tap into my emotions the best, it's it's definitely like after 11 o'clock. Like if we could record this podcast hmm. at, at 1230, I guarantee you the product would be light years better. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I know that because in, in college, I, I don't know why I did this, but I, I decided to to write a movie, which if anyone asks, I'm, I'm not sending it out cause it's, it's not great. Um, but I, have I you worked on all. it since Turkey? Um, I, I kind of rounded it out. I, I, I made it a little more modern. I took out some of the, the older non pop culture references. So, I mean like it, it's still readable, but it, you know, it, I, I realize now like that's, that's a first, first effort. It's like your pottery story. Like I, I was, I was focused on oh, one right. product and you know, it, it, if somebody read it, they'd be like, okay, this is this first guy's, uh, script. So I, and I'm fine with that failure. I, I appreciate that. I just got to learn from it. But the thing that I really saw about myself was, you know, I kind of came alive at 1245 to, to two o'clock in the middle of the night. Like the creative juices just started flowing and stuff would, things would materialize that, that you didn't expect that I guarantee you at seven o'clock in the morning, I could sit there day after day for years and and some of that stuff wouldn't have come up uh, interesting when i was in college my study study habits consisted of me hanging out with everyone and just hanging out in the dorm in the like open area the common area and then at i think it was two o'clock was the common area shut down then me and my roommate would go back to the room and just start our homework and we do homework from two to four a.m I don't think it was a success, like a smart approach necessarily. I just had too many distractions. <laughs> and the yeah, other I mean, advantage that's definitely was, true too. The other advantage was my classes didn't start till 11, so that was nice. My roommate's classes started at 8, and he was dragging every single time. Like he just kept wanting to, I think he wanted to hang with me in the nighttime, but then it just, his 8 a.m. class was brutal. Yeah, that was, I was kind of like a biphasic sleeper at that point. Like I would, I would stay like I'd get my homework done at like midnight. Then I'd I'd write <laughs> the movie script from like twelve forty five oh, wow. to two o'clock, and then I'd get up for for breakfast at I think it was like five fifty was what time we rolled out of bed. And then I'd go to class and I'd get back at like eleven, and then go to lunch. And then when I came back from lunch, then I would take a nap. I'd take like an hour and a half nap. Okay. So like it was it was a livable position for me, but like <laughs> if I try to do that now, I I don't know how functional it'll be. So any other thoughts? So, I mean, my, my big takeaways from this are, um, doing more journaling, um, to help me look back through my failures, um, really digging in. I, th- I think the more I say that question, you know, what still puzzles me, I want to, I want to start asking that more because I, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to like the exploration. What about you? Okay. So the first thing is I really want to look back like, so in some ways I've been going through the motions with my five minute journal. So I think I really want to really focus and uh, ask myself and think about actually what I'm doing. And maybe particularly when I talk about what I could have done better, thinking about it more deeply and maybe even asking 
over the course of a week what I could have done better. And then I like your question, what's your definite or um, what still puzzles me? So here's, and I got, I'm going to get you on Headspace, the meditation app. I think I sent it to you once, but the app does a great job of like demystifying meditation. And then it also keeps track. So it's like, hey, you've done three in a row, you've done four in a row, you've done five in a row. So that kind of gives you an incentive to keep doing it every single day. But there's, and you do kind of like the intro and then there's different, um, well, they call them different packs, different things. But there's one where, uh, I don't even remember what the question was, but you just ask yourself a question in the third person and then you don't think about that question, but you just let your mind kind of just bounce, like bounce it around. And so uh, like when you do that, you kind of get like real deep thoughts on, on, on answering that question. So I'm interested to try that technique with this question. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And actually I, I jumped back in on Headspace this weekend. So I'm, oh, did you really? I'm, I'm back on it. Hey, I'm, I'm going to, you can, you can be buddies on there. So I'm, I'm going to re-engage and I'm going to track your progress. Nice. I'll be texting yeah. you at nine, at 9 PM <laughs> if you haven't done it yet. No, text me at like eight in the morning. So you haven't, you haven't done your morning <laughs> okay. session yet. Okay. As long as if it's a morning session, I'll just keep track. So one email I sent Axel and I'm, I'm transitioning a little bit. I sent, there was a picture of Steph Curry this week and he was in a sensory deprivation tank. And I was like, that's right. Axel is uh, right on the cutting it's, edge of performance hey, it's training. Legit. It's legit, man. I think he, he maybe he was he attributing his uh, phenomenal, maybe the best 21 games in NBA history to partially to that tank. I didn't uh, see I'm that not, article. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm I'm pretty sure he was alluding to the fact that almost all of his success was was because he could he could take a few moments to actually filter out all the noise from from life and and really harness harness what success felt like oh man i need to go back but before i go back you also sent me another email well shortly after our podcast last week uh so we talked about the fact that i on a couple of occasions attempted to do a backflip and was never successful frank found i'll let you talk about exactly what you found sure well so after the podcast i i, I said I'm going to find you this and you're going to be shocked at how quickly it all comes together. So I spent, it was less than 12 minutes for sure. Just Googling, you know, gyms and, uh, parkour places in, in DC. And within that time frame, I found one that had a session. It was like, we, we recorded on Wednesday and they had a session on Friday. It was like a private it lesson was, with somebody who would specifically teach you to do a backflip. It's called Friday flip day. Like it yeah. is called Friday flip day. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was two days later. Well, I had and a, and you just responded back with the world is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it seriously is. So I'm, I'm like, I'm all in on that before. I, so I got to get that. I need to do the flotation tank. And then I also, so I have the book triumphs of experience. I ordered it. I got through the intro. So I'm working on that from a book club perspective. Nice. It's dense. It's dense. I need to actually, I gave it away to somebody, so I need to actually buy another copy. So I'll, I'll do that this week too. Um, one, so I actually, I'm going to promote us at noise canceling pod on, on Twitter. If you want to follow us, my, my favorite tweet of the week came from, from me specifically. So I'm going to quote myself <laughs> on this one. Uh, incremental pr improvement is the toughest to accept and embrace. Keep building momentum, stay focused and find some accountability for goals. Nice. So that, nice. that was my thought for the week. And, uh, 
I was definitely thinking about it. I was trying to get leg day started because I'm not a leg day, leg day guy. And I was trying to get motivated. I was laying in bed at 530 this morning. I was like, I got to get up and do this. This is, uh, this is not motivating. So I, I did finally get up. It was a very half-assed workout, but I, I still, I I still got Sometimes you just got to get the momentum going, okay, leg day, leg day. And then once you get in the habit, then you're like, okay, now I can give it a go. But just getting up out of bed is the most important thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Hey, I, so, pre- I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, I have an item for or a thing I want to talk about next week. Sure. So I have this, I guess it's kind of a thought exercise and I need to go back. I don't know if I've ever made notes on this. I've only thought about it. But I have this exercise where I go back to each calendar year of my life and I think about like what was my number one item or experience and I usually exclude travel from that year. So what I want to do, I don't know if you could go back and think about this, but like there's, I don't know what, so put like journaling and med- uh, that's, I'm getting ahead of myself, but probably like journaling and meditation, uh, meditation last year, 2015 is meditation, 2014 is journaling, but I want to go like see how far back you can go and go, oh, that item was really cool. That was something that, that changed my life or that. Even if it's like a new habit, an, either like a new habit or a new item, each year of your life. Do you want to do that as the entire podcast? Because you think we can, we have? I don't know if I can go all the way back to like my. I could only go back to when I left college. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I could go back. I could definitely get back to to high school. I think high school is where I'm just like, this doesn't matter. Like I'm not, I'm not really interested <laughs> yeah. in, in even discussing it because I wasn't. I wasn't a person admirable enough to to go back and revisit it. So I yeah I mean maybe just the first half. Yeah, but I've, I I'm interested to see what your items are, and then I think we can all, all probably learn a little bit from each other on the things that they think are important or the things that they found interesting. Is there a character limit? Is it like you get one sentence to describe it, or are we gonna have no, like it's, a theme it's and then unlimited. you can expand? Okay, it's a it's just an item. It's just each calendar year. It's I, I don't know. I think I used to describe it to people. It wasn't that that because they would say, "Hey, what did you think about a foam roller?" I don't. I don't know if that's gonna win, but that was in the in the running. So whoever had told me about the foam roller, I was just making a joke, and I said, "Hey, this is my running for best item, best new pickup of 2009 or whatever it was." So it's kind of like, like a it. joke I have with people when they when they when they. Uh, suggest something new and i like i tell them hey this is the writing for my top item of this calendar year well well podcast is quickly coming up on on my 2015 list so it (laughs) might be there some of these lists are gonna be tough because you can say what your number one was but then also maybe we'll even talk about hey this is a close second yeah for sure no that's that's a that's a really good one i'm i'm excited to hear that so with that i'm i'm frank boys and this is axel clark i want to thank Trevor for coming on and giving us his perspective. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at TRaley7. Next week, we have an exciting episode planned. We're going to talk about some of our travel stories and travel tips. So everyone have a great week.